Welcome to the Season 2 premiere of March Mad Men. In this episode, we begin a tournament of champions, pitting 64 of the most notable slasher movies ever made against each other two by two to determine which is the greatest of all time. Tonight, six movies will enter the arena and only three will come out. Figuring out the winners and losers with me, John Evans, are two men who have seen a few slashers in their day. Vikram Wheat has written several produced films in the horror genre, and Rich Eckersley has produced a number of TV series and documentaries over the last few years. These guys both know and love horror as much as I do. Fellas, we've been prepping for this season for months now, but at last, the lights are on, the bullets are live, and the competition is real. Are you ready to study the slasher movie genre in truly psychotic detail with me? Fellas, let's do this thing. Hell yeah. Woohoo! I am pumped. And tonight, we've got some interesting movies to talk about, guys. We do indeed. But first, gentlemen, let me inaugurate this season with... Yes. Ah. Oh, that sounded good. It did. Let's <laughs> see, I wonder if I can get the, the, the pour. Can we get any of the pour on this? Well, probably not. No this poor, the, but the pop. Uh, the the <laughs> pop is the important part. It's the inaugural beer of uh, season two. This is a Belgian Pirat. Uh, not a French slasher film. <laughs> Although there will, be, there will be French slasher films. So, Yes, I am drinking uh, the Aloha Sculpin Hazy IPA. We have no Hawaiian slasher films, but uh, oh well. I'll drink it anyway. I'm having a Coors Light. <laughs> no. What am I, a maniac? No. <laughs> People. It's a pizza port. Swami. Just nice. so you know, I did have four beer varieties uh, allowed for me a night. I don't only drink pizza port, but when I podcast, I do. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sure that there are some slasher movies that feature surfers. Absolutely. You are brand loyal, Rich, man. I, I really appreciate that. But pizza port is is worthy of your love, so no uh, condemnations here. <laughs> there will be there will be condemnations, just not yet. On this show, there are always condemnations. Don't worry about that. And uh, yeah, who knows? It could get ugly real quick. Let's kick it off with the peak franchise. Uh, regional. I don't know if anyone listening is really familiar with the March Madness Tournament, the NCAA basketball tournament that our, our show is loosely patterned off of structurally. They have regionals, East Regional, West Regional, and so on. And we decided with a 64-film field, say that five times fast, we thought it would be best to break them up kind of by sub-sub-sub-genre and pit similar films against each other so that the greatest of that type will have to emerge before it goes up against films of a different kind under the, the big tent, the umbrella of slasher films however you define that. So the core movies we're kind of calling peak franchise. Here you've got your Halloweens and your Nightmare on Elm Streets and Friday the 13th and Texas Chainsaw, things like that. Whatever movie emerges from this regional is probably going to be the heavy favorite to win the whole thing, folks. 
because these are the big brand names, the Amazon and Google, Apple and Microsoft of the slasher films. (laughs) They're the elite, okay? So why dilute the field by having them wipe everyone else out first when steel sharpens steel? They must first defeat their peers and equals. Maybe, just maybe, a wild card will emerge from the other regionals, the best of the rest, to defeat this juggernaut at the end. But this is kind of where we put the obvious favorites in our tournament. So they're not going to just, you know, mop up the weak sisters in all the other categories. They have to beat each other. It's going to be very Darwinistic, folks. So we're starting with tonight's matchup is a number one seed... Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, definitely one of the granddaddies of them all, will be facing off against I Know What You Did Last Summer, which is, probably not surprisingly to anyone listening, a number 16 seed. That would be the lowest kind of seed in our 64 film tournament. So before we get on to the actual matchup any thoughts comments guys about uh, anything you want to add um about the the process the the tournament how it's looking uh the categories well i do want to point out that we did limit ourselves to three three films from an individual franchise so there are only three friday the 13th movies in this tournament only three halloween movies only one i know what you did last summer that's a shocker for you fans of I still know what you did last summer or God forbid, I'll always know what you did last summer. <laughs> Technically, though, those films were eligible because we could have put all three in, but uh, no, they didn't make the cut. That's true. Well, my pitch for I forgot what you did last fall uh, never got picked up or else I can assure you that would be riding high in this particular sub uh, sub genre. John, should we run down? Do you want to run down the other four sub genres? We're only going to get to three of them tonight. So we've got Peak Franchise, right? We've got Meta Slashers. We've got Dark Horse. And then we've got Old School, which is, uh, I think, the actual Dark Horse candidate. Uh, I think the Old School has a lot of uh, heavy hitters that just didn't develop into franchises. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, four regionals, four different kind of subcategories of slasher movies. Meta are films that are kind of playing with the subgenre conventions, either overtly or subtly. A horror comedy would fit in here, even if it's not blatantly meta in the sense that we think of meta as a self-aware, breaking the fourth wall kind of a term for entertainment. But uh, yeah, we have a pretty loose definition of meta, but they just have to be somewhat uh, aware of slasher movies, aware of the the conventions scream is a really obvious example of a meta uh slasher film old school yes the seminal films they're definitely they have to be old right they're not really known for franchises though for whatever reason they're definitely not new they're not postmodern they're not meta they're kind of old-fashioned and traditional in some key respects they can be weird they can be distinctive in their own way but uh these are are films that kind of are representing the purest form of slasher films. And then the Dark Horse is kind of anything that doesn't fit, you know, that's doing its own thing, that's playing its own game and is very notable and interesting in some way, but it kind of defies characterization. But they're they're all movies that kind of 
forge their own trail and they're not really part of uh, a tradition even within the subgenre of slasher films. John, I've always thought of you as defying characterization in some way. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you, Rich. Uh, I, I'm going to take that in the best possible way. I do have one other question for those new to the process or who have just drinking so much that they've forgotten. What would you say is the role of this first round that we're heading into? Like, what's its purpose? What's going to make it different from the subsequent rounds? Well, yeah, we're going to be taking a much lighter and quicker and breezier approach with this round versus later rounds because, you know, we're casting a really wide net with 64 films in the tournament at the outset. A lot of these movies will proceed through multiple rounds. And we want this round, hopefully, and some of these, you know, matchups even tonight are going to be close. So who knows? Because I should reiterate, if if people uh, haven't listened to our first season, we, the three of us, are going to vote on each matchup. And we don't know. We haven't talked about which movie is going to win. I mean, anything can happen, honestly. We could have huge upsets where two of us vote for a, a movie that is the, the lower seed than the other. But kind of you know, getting the lay of the land here and expecting the seeding process to be somewhat predictive, we're planning on talking more about the movies that won't be talked about anymore after tonight. So we'd like to give some love to those films because all 64 movies are worthy of discussion. So uh, that's our general game plan. Does that answer your question, Rich? Yes, I think so. Thank you. One last thing, guys. Uh, if anybody wants to see the actual brackets, you can see how everything breaks down, start to get a sense. We'll, we'll tell you at the end of each episode which films are going to be in the next episode. But if you want to get a look at the, the big picture, uh, check us out on Facebook at March Mad Men, and we'll have uh, images of all the brackets, and we'll update them as we get through each round. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you, Vic. Yeah, that's going to be your way to see what's coming because obviously we would love for all of you listening to watch the movies. I know, you know, we all have busy lives, but uh, it would help as we move forward and move past the spoiler-free discussions to talk about movies that uh, you all have seen recently. It'll be more fun and interesting for you that way. So not a requirement, but uh, in this way, you can maybe keep up uh, with us and watch these movies right along with us let's get this first matchup underway i don't know how tightly contested this is going to be but i will introduce the heavy favorite the texas chainsaw massacre we begin with the number one seed here it's truly a film that needs no introduction but i'll give it one anyway <laughs> the log line is uh there's a bunch of young people on a road trip and they encounter a family of cannibals with gruesome and harrowing results. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, period. It's got everything that you want from a slasher movie. It has all the defining characteristics of a slasher film, including a character and performance that is inarguably one of the quintessential final girls of all time, as final girl has been defined. It has one of the top four most iconic slasher killers of all time, it has one of the greatest, most memorable sequences in any slasher film. I'm referring to Grandpa and the Hammer, but you could probably give me a couple other candidates from this film, including the ending. And you could say there's not a lot of traditional stalking with POV cameras and whatnot in this movie that other slashers have, but I would argue that the camera itself 
does the stalking in this movie, it's not so much the POV of one of the cannibal family members as the POV of impending death, but it has that darkly voyeuristic menace that is a hallmark of the genre, if not a requirement. I'm going to leave it there for now um, on this one because I'm pretty sure we're going to get into this movie in more depth later. Vic, over to you with I Know What You Did Last Summer. Well, don't be so sure, John, all right? (laughs) Because I Know What You Did Last Summer is the scrappy little underdog in this competition. Uh, So I Know What You Did Last Summer, uh, directed by a guy named Jim Gillespie in 1997. It was Kevin Williamson's follow-up to Scream. Uh, based on Lois Duncan's uh, book, which, well, I've read a ton of these those books when I was that age. I never read this one. Um, general log line, so uh, in the fall, a group of kids kill someone with their car, hide the body, and live happily ever after. Now, actually what happens is they kill someone with their car, hide the body, and then fall apart over the next year. Then, when they return to their hometown from their first year of college, they begin getting threatening notes and worse from someone who, well knows what they did last summer. (laughs) So as I said, this was Kevin Williamson's follow-up to Scream. Um, There's actually very little meta content. It's it's very much just a straightforward slasher. Uh, It's competently executed. There's a a few sort of notable sequences that have some good suspense or execution. It's well shot. I like there's a lot of very super low angle shots of the the fisherman as the slasher uh, in in this film is, is unimaginatively named. Uh, but he's sort of his his weapon of choice is a a hook. So there's a lot of low angle shots of him pulling the hook out of his rain slicker. It's rated R, but the violence is is uh, toned down for this kind of thing. It's still very violent. There's there's almost no nudity to speak of. So aside from being sort of a straightforward slasher, this was a slasher uh, of its of its era. It was not uh, really an '80s type slasher. It has a Really good soundtrack. I think the performances are especially good. You've got a quartet of uh, young rising stars in uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prinze Jr., and Ryan Phillippe. Sarah Michelle Gellar especially, I think, is very good uh, in the film. And it has sort of surprisingly this interesting take on these kids dealing with what happened to them or what they what they did and the guilt and how it sort of torn them apart when you find them a year later. It's all really sort of well done and well performed. I mean, this is not a, a home run film. The uh, the ending of the, the film is a real dud. Uh, it doesn't doesn't work. It isn't scary. The, the fisherman loses his slicker, which just really takes a lot of the scariness out of it. But I do like the setting and something that I think we should all look for as we go forward in these is something that I find myself noticing in these films is the setting and the way that it plays much more of a role in terms of where it's taking place, the town, the city, the groups of kids, and that sort of thing. So again, it's silly. It's not a great film, but I was pleasantly surprised. And I, I liked that it was not self-referential and, and really felt like a departure from Scream, even though that's what it's most closely associated with. I mean, look, there's two different ways to view this movie. You can view this movie on its own merits, or you can view this movie standing in the shadow of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is which is actively what we're doing. And that's a David and Goliath fight uh, that <clears throat> that does not go the way that the, the Bible has, has told us, uh, I would imagine. What I'll say about this movie is that it does add an additional layer that many of these movies don't have, which is that this is like some of Kevin Williamson's other uh, screenplays that some of which we'll talk about in this podcast 
kind of tries to turn it into more of like a murder mystery with slasher elements. Yes. Um, and much like those other movies, it's it's dressed up with colorful young stars from the nation's hottest teen television series at the time, um, which, again, is another thing that sets it apart from a lot of the other slashers, even the, I'd say, the, the peak franchise slashers in this competition, in that you actually have people who are recognizable faces starring in these movies, and not just one. It's not like you just have one lead. It's not like Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun. Like, you're talking about four people who, like, everyone who was coming of age, at least, at, you know, at, at this time in their lives that when it was released, like, could have named the people on this poster. They had very little to, to prove, I think, in that regard, other than to, like, say that, that, that they were starring in feature films. In some ways, that works to its advantage. Like, it's the, the shine and sheen of this thing, which is, is very, like, kind of fits in with, like, the, 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 this Platinum Dunes era. I know it's not a Platinum Dunes movie, but, like, it kind of fits in with that, that very polished, kind of high-budget, um, horror film that you're getting around this time period, and to a certain degree, like it, it, it does it well. I do think that the, the kills are are bloody and occasionally brutal. I like that about it. But at the end of the day, like you said, Vic, for a movie that's going to rest, that's going to rest its uniqueness on being a murder mystery, flubbing the ending is not a good look. That makes it play like a, a little bit flat to me. Ultimately, it's a movie that I think is a little more interested in in appearances, um, although it does have some clever dialogue. I had watched this movie fairly recently, and it left me pretty cold. These movies, because they're not typically very plot deep, they either grab you and they or they don't. And this movie just like didn't grab me. I, I think you guys both made a lot of good points. I can't really say anything was incendiary or completely opposed to my read of it. It's a movie that I watched again during our film selection process relatively recently. And I didn't like it before all that much when I saw it in the 90s. I didn't revisit it until now. And I still don't care for it that much. It's competent. It's definitely competent, especially when you compare it to low-budget slasher movies. But for me, this is a great example of how misguided, tame, and toothless most of the spawn of Scream movies were back in the 90s. What we called movies with WB casts back then, and Rich, you alluded to this. You could call them CW casts now if you want. They're beautiful young people wondering which one of them was bloodlessly murdering the others in these bland whodunits. At least this movie has Sarah Michelle Gellar at the peak of her powers and a couple of moderately suspenseful sequences in the middle. And I agree with you guys both that the ending it loses a lot of points for a very broad, like Universal Studios tour level ending, if that makes any sense, where all the effects feel like something you would see from the tram of the Universal Studios tour. And just very, you know, nothing visceral about it at all. Just schlocky, mid-budget Hollywood from that era of filmmaking. We could keep talking about the movie, but I think it's seated as a sacrificial lamb for a reason, because it has no real shot of being named the greatest slasher movie of all time. I, I will randomly say in a, in a search for you know nice things to say, the couple of kills in the middle with the, the rain-slickered 
meat hook wielding man, you know, with the ice blocks. And as Vic was alluding to the fishing culture of this town and all of that. And the miss shrimp boat or whatever the hell she is (laughs) like kind of the, the local color stuff is, is good. And yeah, the acting and the quality of Kevin Williamson dialogue is all, all fine. It, it's, it's, it's an okay movie, but it's not the greatest slasher movie of all time. You do make a good point, and I'll be brief, but it's like there, there's always a question of like, well, why is it even here in the competition then? And I think you're right that like there were still like a lot of movies being made at that time. You know, we're not talking about Chain Letter. Uh, spoiler alert. I don't think it made it into the, <laughs> the running. You know, and so it's like this at least had personality and it had memorable elements and it was you know, competently executed. So it's like, it's not like it's all bad. I wouldn't discourage anyone from watching this movie. I just wouldn't get their expectations up. I find myself as, as we've gone through these films and and watching so many slasher films over the last couple of months with lots more to go. The character stuff is much more meaningful to me than the, the violence and the nudity. Uh, And I found myself just again, pleasantly surprised that there was, there was some actual realism there was some believability to the relationships. And I just want to point this out because I also watched uh, Christmas Vacation recently with my family, as we do every year, was reminded that Johnny Galecki was also in that and then also turns up in this. And just if you'd asked yourself at any point in 1997 or in 1993, whenever Christmas Vacation went out, came out, who's going to be the most successful of this entire cast <laughs> in 2021? It's not Chevy Chase. It's not Juliette Lewis. It's not uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, although she's obviously still doing fine. It's not Ryan Phillippe. No, it's Johnny Galecki who has more money than God. <laughs> I just like to see that when I when when you're watching movies and you're like, oh look, it's that nerdy kid that gets picked on through the whole through the the whole movie in every movie he's in. And now, yeah, he's uh, he's he's king of the hill. So he, he's the richest person associated with this film. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Well, uh, Vic, I I like that you you did a good job championing this film, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and cast my vote right now for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Why? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my vote is obviously for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Shocker. I, I, I know my vote does not count at this point, but I, I would like to say that if, if this competition were just the movie I Know What You Did Last Summer versus the poster for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I would vote for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) That puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? (laughs) Sadly or not sadly, um, one of the 90s slashers bites the dust. And it's on to our next matchup, perhaps a more competitive one. Let's move on and talk about... Fear Street 94, a brand new film against Hatchet 2. This will be interesting because Fear Street 94 comes into our tournament in the meta category as an 8 seed. And Hatchet 2 is right at its heels, a 9 seed. So this is theoretically a toss-up, anything goes, equally weighted films 
this could be a more interesting conversation. Vic, you are also the, the introducer of Fear Street 94. I do believe you may like it more than Rich or I, so tell us about Fear Street 94. Before I get started, John, I just want to ask, if any of our listeners are able to mock up some sort of meme with John like handing a rose to Leatherface uh, whenever <laughs> whenever a movie wins, you know, I would love to see that. And uh, I just... Again, if somebody out there wants to do that, that would be fabulous. Fear Street 94, which was uh, released in 2021, directed by Lee, and I'm going to butcher her last name, uh, I'm going to say Janiak? Would it be a Janiak? I don't know. Uh, she is uh, married to one of the Duffer brothers that created Stranger Things, which weirdly seems to inform this series. So that's sort of why I wanted to bring that up. The logline goes something like, after upsetting a witch's grave, a group of teenagers are stalked by the slashers of their cursed town's past. Uh, as John alluded to, I really like uh, this film and, and this series generally. I think it it very subtly undermines the uh, tropes of the, the slasher film while still feeling sort of sexy and edgy and dark and, and surprisingly violent. Uh, I love in this film, I love that the, the central relationship is is not just interracial and also queer, but also it's about class, uh, as is, I think, much of the movie and much of the subsequent films. Even more than that, I think it taps into a feeling that a lot of teenagers grapple with. I read these Fear Street books when I was a kid, uh, and and I remember really connecting with them to a certain extent. Now, this is not a direct translation of any individual book. It's more taking the, the series as inspiration. But it's that feeling that teenagers grapple with. It's this idea that the whole world is against you, that, that fate is somehow conspiring to keep you down. I think it it connected deeply with me uh, when I was a kid, again, in 1994, when I was reading these. I definitely felt some of that uh, in when I was 15 and I was in a shithole town that was filled with violence and poverty and drugs and hopelessness. And I was a straight white kid, you know, so like I can't imagine what it was, what it, what it's like. And, and I think that's why having protagonists like Dina and Sam uh, makes it more than just just virtue seat signaling, which is a phrase that I hate. It's they're the perfect vehicles for communicating that shared sense of hopelessness. And that makes their triumph at the end, however short lived, all the more satisfying. So, yeah, it's got a great soundtrack. I think the performances are good. Uh, the movie is, I heard someone describe uh, the movie Super 8 this way uh, regarding the 80s, but it's its more 90s than the actual 90s were. I, but I think the characters are solid. Uh, I think it's got humor. The second act sags a little bit when we start to understand some of the plot mechanics, but it picks back up at the end. And there is a, a death that involves a bread slicer that is an all-timer for me. So that's my, uh, that is that is my all-in pitch on Fear Street 94. Well said, a great encapsulation of the themes and the, and the character work, uh, which I think are, are part of the, the strengths of the movie. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely not a, a shallow hack and slash horny teenager kind of slasher film. And I think I, I 100% appreciated that as well as you did. You and I, Vic, will go to war over Fear Street 73 at some point. That's the second one. 78, John. 78. Is you it? You put it at 74 yet. Yeah, you put it at 74 on all of our documents. <laughs> you just said 73. It's 78, John. <laughs> That's how little I care about that movie. I can't even keep it in my mind. No. All right. Fair enough. I didn't sweat the details. We'll talk about that. But... 
I just see these two films as being so unlike each other. This movie challenges its characters to figure out what makes the bad guys tick and come up with a way to maybe possibly get out of this alive. That gives the plot a lot more dynamism than the average wander around unwittingly and get killed kind of a slasher movie story. And I'm putting air quotes on story there. These kids try things. They have good plans, but they don't work. They have to try something else. It's the way it kind of twists and turns and demands resourceful action from the characters is, in my opinion, good writing. It's not just run, chase, hide, fight. And also, you alluded to, there's a real relationship at the heart of this movie. And I, I think that that absolutely works thematically and you know dramatically. Also, the movie has like a, a little bit of sexuality to it. It's kind of sensual and it captures the, the kind of erotic urges of teenagers that don't know what to do with. And it's all clumsy, but so relatable and primal. And it nails that aspect of this, which is such a huge part of being a teenager. It doesn't feel fake. It feels like it's coming from the the real awkward desires and strong emotions of that time in, in our lives. So I think it's a, a, a very much a interesting film. And as maybe we'll get into it, it functions well as a slasher movie, but that, that was my, those are my overarching thoughts about it. Rich, how do you feel about this movie? You guys have said a, a lot of very positive things that I agree with. And I, I can't add a whole lot to that. I, I will point out that this movie does have, I guess, like unenviable or alternately ambitious task of setting up essentially a franchise that is being released all at once. So this is the only movie that I can even think of, certainly in our competition, where all three films were basically completed and released, I think, within a month of each other. In a way, like I feel like you can see through this and that this is really just a six part Netflix series that they, that they packaged as a three movie deal. But at the same time, like I think it accomplishes being a feature film that stands alone on its own. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of saddled with this mythology that it has to, that it has to build these like legacy characters who are going to stretch, stretch over the three films but who maybe don't necessarily fit into this one. I'm thinking specifically of Jillian Jacobs' character at the end, who's basically just there to sort of lead you into the into the next movie and to tie the three of them together. So I think that it suffers a little bit from that. I also think that its 107-minute uh, runtime is is a little on the fat side for for what they were going for here. This is a movie that would have benefited from being tighter, and you get you strongly get the feeling that that is studio-related bloat. Um, that was put in there to sort of fill out what otherwise would have been like a six episode run of a, of, of a series. So I'd say that those things try to drag it down a little bit and that it succeeds largely against those circumstances. Like it continues to be compelling. I think it brings you back to the second one for sure. Whether it brings you back for the third, I think is another discussion. There's no point in comparing uh, this one and the and the the next part, whatever year it is, because uh, at some point perhaps they'll end up facing e each other. But uh, but anyways, I also enjoyed this movie. Not perfect, but enjoyed it for sure. Rich, your description makes me wonder what would have happened if there had been competent people in charge of Halloween four, five, and six when they tried <laughs> to bring together a a mythology and 
uh, and and tell a coherent story. This is well. Well, just wait till later on in the season when we get into the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, legacy of of sequels and alternate mythologies. That's fair. Oh yes, yes. And uh, spoiler alert: TCM is well represented. All three spots are taken in in that franchise. So yeah, we'll we'll delve into that. Um, and it's jumping timelines. I wish this film, actually all of them, had focused more on the killers and less on the screaming witch. I like that she, you know, kind of creates the killers and uses them. But I think one of the attractions of this concept is they have this whole deep bench of killers, psycho killers, that are somewhat possessed in some way. But uh, they could have used them in scarier ways. I think that's the true power of the premise. I didn't ever really care about the off-screen witch, and I did not get to the third film where maybe we we really deal with her in a more decisive way. But I, I think that the, the they they sort of missed the boat on what was the most dynamic element of their premise. They definitely explore the, the, the various killers in more detail uh, as you go forward. But I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with that, John. I suppose I see that. But I liked the three killers that they introduced. I thought Ruby Lane uh, singing her song with a straight razor was pretty effective. And the Camp Nightwing killer with the bag over his head, obviously an homage to Friday the 13th Part 2, was was effective. And there's something sort of visceral about him. You see him running a lot toward them in a way that you're not used to seeing that kind of killer or somebody doing with an axe or something. I thought that sort of upped the, the ante a little bit. It's a little bit like running zombies, which sort of changed the game. And then the, the, the skull-masked killer was fine, uh, not particularly particularly effective but the opening sequence i thought was 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 pretty tight and a good you know nobody ever top scream for the 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 opening uh, sequence kill i think uh in this type of film let's say but i did think it had a strong opening with him so you're right they probably left they probably left uh, a little bit of money on the table with those but i didn't think it was i didn't think they completely missed on it either oh no i mean i think it generally works in this particular movie i'm almost like now criticizing the second one again but uh i i do like the way that the nightwing killer is depicted in the, in this film and that made the second one even more disappointing because i didn't like the way he played in that one but uh it's not that they totally you know mishandle the cards they have to play in this movie i think that the killers are are cool rich did you like the the trio uh, yeah, I, I, I loved it. I, again, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about just within the confines of like only talking about this movie because it's sort of like the unpacking of those killers. Like so many of them are there to set up backstories in, in later installments of the movie. So like as a, as a standalone, I thought it was like a, a fun concept. It's not like I was like really like pulled into the story because there wasn't any story for, for most of them. They were just sort of un, unnamed, un explained killers they were just minions of the of the witch for the most part in this film but yeah i mean honestly like that part of it felt fresh like it felt like a, a slasher party um which was kind of cool and, and engaging it felt like something i hadn't seen before yeah i i think they were a little too miniony actually but uh yeah overall it it works so let's move on to hatchet 2 and this one Rich has volunteered to introduce to us. Doesn't mean he loves the film per se, but 
everybody has to take a turn introducing a film. And Rich, you got Hatchet too. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about theme, nuance, character? (laughs) (laughs) Talk about another film. Because we're talking about Hatchet 2. I'm sorry, we're talking about Adam Green's Hatchet 2, released in 2010 and directed by the very humble Mr. Green, who puts his name over the title, despite it only being his... <laughs> I, I actually had a hard time figuring this out. It's like it's his third or fourth feature film. He did a lot of like super independent stuff before this and some, and some shorts, so it's a little hazy. It does feature Hatchet 1 vets uh, and, and Friday the 13th alum Kane Hodder as, the, as, the, as Victor Crowley. It's got Tony Todd coming back in a much larger role uh, that he did in the first one, playing the same character, Reverend Zombie. And Daniel Harris steps in to play Mary Beth, a character that was played by uh, another actress named Tamara Feldman um, in part one. So uh, the movie actually is, is the same night as part one. It's just that the actress playing the lead character has changed. Just to kind of like sum it up, I'd say it's like hot off the heels of this like doomed night in Hatchet One, which features a bunch of like old people being torn in half and things of that nature. Daniel Harris graciously continues to play the Hatchet One character's character, Mary Beth, the final girl who outwitted Victor Crowley, the arguably iconic deformed slasher. She joins forces with Tony Todd, her uncle, and an obnoxious bevy of bounty hunter chuckleheads who head out into the swamp to be dismembered. <laughs> this movie fought a very difficult uh, ratings battle. Um, apparently, it's kind of a guerrilla ratings battle, but they apparently the cat attempted to slap it with a NC-17 rating, which Adam Green felt was unfair. So he went unrated for this movie, and they made a deal with AMC to get it released when it came out in 2010 um, as an unrated film. But when they released it, it basically got pulled due to M- MPAA pressure uh, after four days. So it had a very, very like truncated theatrical run. Um, and it's also worth noting, especially in the same show where we had Buffy uh, herself in here, that this was also the final feature film credit of Mercedes, Mercedes McNabb. <laughs> yes. Who was also who was Harmony on Buffy. That's right. Um, she actually she got married and retired in 2011. She appears very briefly on as video footage of her character from the first hatchet movie in terms of like what i liked about this movie it's a very conscientious like late in the game slasher throwback it's not even quite like a meta movie and it's not even really a comedy but like at the same time it's very aware of what it is it's it's really interested in being an homage and trying to recycle and like up the ante on these like age old ideas of these over the top 80s horror movie slashers. And yet it manages to be its its own thing, uh, whether you whether you like it or not. I've definitely read like in reading about it, like it's been described as ironic. But to me, it's it's not even really ironic. It's just it's kind of obnoxiously having fun and playing with the sandbox tools of the genre and above all, like letting you know that it absolutely does not take itself seriously. So I guess like in that sense, it's, it's ironic. The quality of it really shares some indie movie DNA almost with something like, I hesitate to say terrifier, but like there's definitely a gore hound quality to this. Like you come to this for blood and boobs, especially uh, the, the first hatchet film. This one is significantly fewer boobs, but there's definitely a lot of blood. I mean, like they stock the boat, 
with these bounty hunters who are just there to like crack wise or in some cases say absolutely nothing majority of the movie only so that they can be ripped apart or their eyes can be gouged out or their jaws can be torn off the way that shot is has this like sort of open shaky sweaty kind of glass eye picks like uh, almost in a way like evoking like the, the sort of documentary like texas chainsaw massacre style like it feels low rent but it does feel like they are in a swamp um it doesn't seem like a fun shoot to be on daniel harris being added to the film is a uh, she brings a lot of intensity as, uh, as she often does sometimes not something that the film is necessarily deserving of but she's like cranking it up to 11 the entire way and she's really giving it her all um tony todd is is game i will say like a little tony todd goes a long way and uh this is probably the longest this is probably like the most screen time i can think of of him having like even more so than in something like Candyman, where he's like arguably the the, the lead you know and uh, I, I don't know like if i had to sum it up all up i'd say that this is just a sort of a goofball like barely meta horror cartoon that is a, a spirited but tedious gory mess <laughs> all right well put uh vic i don't know how you feel about this film so uh enlighten all of us with with your take on it after rich really broke it down very well there uh the good the bad and the ugly i would say rich broke it down very well i mean i love a, a tedious gory horror cartoon <laughs> is, is pretty much right i think i hated this movie wow <laughs> oh okay <laughs> um, I, you're right that it likes to play with the, the various tools in the slasher genre toolbox, except for being scary. It has no interest in being scary, which is something that, that some slasher films do actually try to do. Fair. I just find, I mean, you're, you're right, Rich, in that this is the, the, the blood and boobs school of slasher filmmaking, which, as I was saying before, I have just come to abhor through this process. Like you cannot substitute good filmmaking and good writing with like you convinced a, a, an actress to take off her top. Like that's, that's just not, or you, or you ripped somebody's jaw off or shoved their face into a boat motor. At a certain point, like even the, the creativity of the kills has just waned on me. Uh, I found this movie trite and obnoxious and I felt bad for uh, both Danielle Harris and Tony Todd, who are who are giving real performances and giving it their all and really trying. The mythology is convoluted. It makes no sense. It's it's dumb. <laughs> there's 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 weird like, yeah, I mean, again, talk all the shit you want about Fear Street. Like, at least there's there's coherence to it. There's weird nods to like, again, you, you're going to call it a meta film. OK, like. Yeah, you mentioned uh, behind the mask, uh, the legend of Leslie Vernon, the rise of Le Leslie Vernon. Like, yes. Wow, you sure know your shit, man. Tom Holland plays her uncle, right? But mm -hmm. who the fuck knows that? All you do, you get to the end of the movie, the credits roll, and you're like, oh, that terrible performance by <laughs> Uncle Bob was given by the director of fucking Fright Night. Like, yeah. you know, I... The, the guy who doesn't speak, which is which is totally self-conscious and really obvious and weird, that's John Carl Buechler, I think, who directed... Uh, uh, no, it is? Uh, Friday the 13th, 7. Are you kidding? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. He also did, like, 
troll, I believe. The first troll. He did, he did, yeah. He did a couple of things. He's got, I mean, he, he did the makeup effects on the first hatchet. So again, Adam yeah. Green was like, hey, like, you're a legend. Get in this movie. But again, who the fuck knows? It? Like, it's not like, it's not like Spielberg putting uh, Francois Truffaut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know what I mean? Like, nobody knows who the fuck this guy is. You see, I saw his name only because we'd done the whole Friday franchise that I go like, oh, those things, instead of feeling like clever and interesting nods to horror hounds like us, felt obnoxious and pretentious. And, and I really, really dislike this movie. Pretentious. Wow. Like, say what you want about this movie, but pretentious isn't a word. I mean, I think this movie is base and playing to the, the cheap seats of, of movie viewers, of cinephiles, clearly, but pretentious isn't a word I would use. I mean, they, the Adam Green thinks that it's like clever and cool and meta to put Tom Holland in a role and put John Carl Buechler in a role. It, you know, those are like clever nods for horror people. But so I guess Quentin Tarantino and uh, Rob Zombie should be crucified and burned at the stake too, because they do the same thing. No, but it works when they do it. This doesn't work this <laughs> I'd, I'd also call them both pretentious. Uh, okay, that would be more fair, <laughs> certainly with Tarantino. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, of all things, I don't think this movie is like trying to be arty, which I think is one of the defining characteristics of pretentious. Isn't it, John? Well, I think it's I think it's 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 impressed with its own cleverness. That's how I, that's what I think of as pretentious. Also, of the laundry list of critiques I offered of the film, you're going to latch on to the word pretentious. <laughs> is there anything else? Anything else you want to talk about? I will say I liked it more than either of you. I think that's that's clear. I don't know that I can really you know yes justify it on a on a strictly artistic level, but I get a kick out of the movie. Uh, for me, the laughs land. They don't feel that forced. They come more from little details of dialogue, character, and performance. I, I think the t cast is pretty talented, other than Tom Holland. Pretty much top from, from top to bottom. And I think they generally turn in entertaining, quirky performances. Yes, the movie puts in a lot of loving care into the kills, some of which I think really pop in a perfect combination of over-the-top gory and darkly funny. The movie is clearly a love letter to the slasher genre, which is why I would put it in the meta category. It's not doing that in a safe and sanitized way, like the contestant in this tournament called Final Girls but in a way that pays tribute to the grubby, tasteless, gory heart of this subgenre. Is it truly scary? And I wrote this before Vic's comments, but I'm in agreement. No, it's not, it's not really scary. Is it truly meta in some brilliant conceptual way that turns the tropes of the slasher film on its head? No. But I've watched it twice just for this tournament, and I did enjoy both watches. So I am inclined to say that it belongs here. I'm not saying I'm going to vote for it, but I definitely think I like this movie and I appreciate what it's doing more than you guys. And I want to say that I think, you know, this is not a big statement, but I think this is really one of Tony Todd's better roles overall. I mean, Rich said that it's certainly one of his biggest in terms of screen time and dialogue. That's sad, but true, but I really like watching the guy. And so I enjoy watching him have 
you know, this much screen time and do what he does. And I dig it. And I think he's great. So that works for me. There's also a Jason Voorhees reference as well as Leslie Vernon uh, for the meta checklist. I think there's some funny dialogue. Like here's an example when um, I think the guy's name is CJ Bowen. He was in like AJ Bowen was in like House of the Devil, things like that. He and his ex are having sex doggy style. And meanwhile, she's asking him questions and she's like about their sex. She's like, do you love it more than ice cream? Yeah, yeah, I do. More than chocolate ice cream? Yeah, 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 I, I do. More than Jesus? It's like, that's not appropriate. <laughs> More than baby Jesus? Unequal amount. <laughs> I mean, come on. This, it's like, what, what movie has ever done that before? I, I, I was laughing. And there's good kills. Like, he chainsaws, Victor Crowley chainsaws two dudes in half, crotch first at the same time with the world's biggest chainsaw. I mean, you got to like that on some level. It's, you know, it's over the top, but it's, it's just wild. And there's a, a more than solid act three for the slasher genre in this film. I'll, I'll also add that. I like the movie. It's not great art, but when you look at it compared to a large number of other films, I think it's a good watch. So that's, that's the last I'll say at this point. You keep referring to how much I disliked it. I actually kind of like this movie. I give my review in, in jest, but I still like thought about it for quite a bit. I here's what I will say, like I agree with, with Vic's concerns that like you need more than than blood and boobs. But I will say that the the only time where I really get like outright offended or like hate a movie because of that is when the movie gets mean and hates its own characters. I don't think this movie hates its its characters at yeah. all. I think this movie is trying to have fun with with everybody. Some of the uh, well, uh, all the the bounty hunters are dumb dumbs, but like, no one's mean in this mm-hmm. movie. And Victor Crowley is just this sort of like mutant maniac who even has like the sympathetic like child like Voorhees esque childhood backstory. It does not put me off in that way. I think I kind of like the first one better which is neither here nor there but both of them definitely give me that like the 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 kills coming in did make me like laugh out loud whereas like there are other movies that were focused on the kills in our competition where the kills like made were so grisly or like overly creative that they made me sort of like cringe and this is playing like the kills like for laughs it's in love with like rubber props being like torn apart and spraying blood everywhere. Like, again, it goes back to the, the cartoon thing. So I do mm-hmm. think that this movie is fun. I think that it, it, it wears out its welcome a bit by the end, but I, I thought it was fun. I actually, I like this movie. I actually feel like for me, this is a, like a, a, a relatively close race between these two movies. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. I misspoke. I Vic is the one that truly loves <laughs> this film. All right. Yes. I will wait. I will say this. I liked Colton Dunn, uh, who is sort of the the most obvious comic relief character in this. He would go on to be very funny on Superstore. He played uh, Vernon. Oh, I love Vernon. I love Vernon. Yeah. Yeah. The cookie guy. The cookie guy. He's one of the two guys who gets cut in half with the the world's longest chainsaw. He is. Wielded by by a ghost. Just, just to be clear, Victor Crowley is a ghost who has access to 
the world's longest chainsaw. Well, that exactly. does make you wonder. Yeah, I mean, are are these ghost power tools, or did you, we just not realize how little maintenance a belt sander and a, and a, and a chainsaw really need in the swamp for 20 years? Well, I, I mean, at least Jason would find a, a you know a shed in the middle of nowhere that had random tools in it, you know. But if there's, I think this film kind of, especially with the first one, establishes that if there's a series where we're not going to worry about shit like this, I think the movie plays that card. This is not a movie where you're, it's gritty authenticity. As a side note, you know, it's hard to pull off horror comedy. And I would say this is, these are technically horror comedies, but they don't completely abandon the suspense or, or the horror elements. I think usually horror comedies jettison the horror and they end up being, you know, weak sauce in that department and it just falls on whether they're funny or not. But I mean, I, I think that the hatchet films walk the line pretty successfully without yes, being truly realistic or caring about plausibility very much. See, I disagree. I think they jettison the suspense. Okay. Obviously the, obviously the horror is there. But I, I, at, at no time was I even mildly concerned. Suspense versus fear is a debate, but I, I, I understand that you're saying, yeah, not even, not even tense, which I can't totally argue with. But I did get a little bit of suspense without being scared, if that makes any sense. I think there is a distinction to be had there. This one could be interesting. I'm going to say, let's start with Rich on this one. Rich, how do you vote Fear Street 94 versus Hatchet 2? Uh, ultimately, I got to go with the body that's got a little more meat on its bones. I am going to go Fear Street 94. All right. Uh, Vic, your your vote was already cast about an hour ago. But <laughs> uh, any comments to accompany your official statement? John, just a, a throwback for the listeners that have been with us for a while. I feel like I, like I, in the suspense before Rich cast his vote, I had an inkling of what you must have felt like before Tale of Two Sisters got voted off the uh, got voted off the show. I'm glad you can uh, empathize with me now. <laughs> yes, now sanity has prevailed, and I too will cast my vote for Fear Street '94. Oh well, I was going to vote for '94, so it's a better movie. I find it more interesting. I do like Hatchet 2. And, you know, hopefully Hatchet 1, when we revisit it, will have the strengths of Hatchet 2 and more, which I I watched, like, all three... Actually, I think I watched all four of them in one weekend. And I very distinctly had a hierarchy in my mind uh, that it was one, two... Uh, four. Three sucks. Maybe we'll revisit the Adam Green multiverse in the future. <laughs> okay, well, this is a good time uh, to refill our beverages. We need at least one uh, beverage refill per show, so why don't we do that? Okay, well, we're trying to give you all an episode a week this season, and this recording is long enough to split, so let's leave that last matchup, My Bloody Valentine versus Tourist Trap, for next time. Until then, adios! Adios!